Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Chastity, Consent, and Other Sexy Things, originally produced and published by the Find Your Person podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Find Your Person. I am Jake, and I'm with my co-hosts, Stephanie and Dustin, and we are super excited for you guys to listen to this uh, episode. We are going to talk about sex, basically, and and also in dating, like sex and dating, as well as just how we can be sexual, I guess you'd say. And we have an awesome guest, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She is a Mormon sex therapist, and she has a lot of stuff that I kind of want to have her kind of explain because I don't want to mess anything up and not Mm -hmm. add anything. Um, So Jennifer, thank you for coming on this uh, episode uh, with us. And we would just like to hear kind of like, you know, your little bit of your background and and kind of what got you started uh, in, in your profession and we'll kind of go from there. Right. Well, thanks for having me. I, um, let's see, I live in Chicago and I'm married and have three children. And um, I grew up in Vermont um, in the church. My parents, they were born and raised in Idaho, but my dad took a job as a professor at University of Vermont. And so that's, this is where I was born. I happen to be in Vermont right now. So, um, but um uh, I went to Brigham Young University and knew that I wanted to be a marriage therapist. You know, eventually that became clear to me that that's really what I wanted to do. It wasn't until I was in grad school and I was asked to um, teach two undergraduate courses. One was drugs and alcohol and the other was sexuality. And as an LDS person with no experience with either, <laughs> I was kind of blown away that those were the two topics that I was supposed to be some kind of expert on. Um, so I was engaged, I think, at that point when I started teaching those courses. The, I, I said no to the drugs and alcohol one and focused on the sexuality one. But it was in the process of teaching that course and kind of coming up to marriage and the questions around sexuality that brought me to my dissertation topic, which was um, looking at LDS women's experiences around sexuality, both premaritally and shifting into marriage and their sense of agency, like that is their sense of kind of personal control and um, efficacy around their sexuality. And so that was the focus of my dissertation. And it was really, you know, um, a really interesting study that, and one I really enjoyed. And so that kind of pushed me into, you know, the couple's work that I was training to do at that point, um, but also then integrating the sexual piece. And so now I, I do a lot of work in the LDS community, helping couples and individuals around issues around emotional and sexual intimacy and creating good relationships and particularly intimate relationships and teach online courses and do podcasts and and all that. And it's really, really satisfying, good work. So yeah, that's me. And I have to say, I have had, I'm very, very passionate about healthy sexuality I don't think that's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of people know about me, but it's definitely true. And listening to some of your work and your podcasts that you've produced throughout the years, 
Mm. That is really what started my journey in understanding mm. my own sexuality and healthy sexuality and, you know, really realizing that that's something that I want in a marriage. Yeah, um, and it, in exploring dating, I think it's something that is kind of absent from the dialogue around dating. Yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Right. And not just absent, but even sort of devalued. I, I somehow was thinking about this the past couple of days because um, my husband and I kind of more abruptly than expected became empty nesters because my youngest, uh, we decided with COVID for her to go to a, a musical boarding school where she is. What? So my point in saying that is that I've just had a lot more time with my husband and it's been great, but it's also been made me think more about our courtship and kind of, I, I don't know, my head's been going back to sort of the beginning of our relationship. And, and uh, one of the things I was thinking about is how foundational the sexual attraction was right from the beginning. And that there were even times when I felt like that made the relationship less, like somehow I should want the guy that I was less attracted to, but that I could have maybe more in-depth conversations with, that somehow that was the real version of intimacy and this sexual piece was somehow cheaper. Right. And I'm so grateful that I did not buy into that <laughs> because I think, you know, romantic relationships and marriages, we have the assumption, even though we sometimes hate to acknowledge it, that they are basically sexual relationships and that's how they're different from other love relationships. Mm -hmm. So if we discredit it or devalue it, it actually interferes with our ability to really choose someone that we're attracted to, drawn to, and want a meaningful sexual relationship with. And, uh, you know, I've seen couples where they did sort of, you know, choose the person they were less attracted to. And then they really struggle, not just the person who feels less attracted, but even more difficult for the person who feels not wanted. That's right. a really challenging, um, it's like implicit that it should be there. And when it's not there, it really rocks the foundation of the marriage. So this is my long answer to your question, which is not only do we sometimes pretend it's not there, we can even go as far as to sort of say that it's somehow cheap if that's a part of it, where I think it's actually really a fundamental part of it. Obviously, if that's all you have, that would be a problem. If it's only sexual attraction, Mm -hmm. But I don't think we should dismiss it as an important part of a, of a lifelong romantic relationship. So well said. That is so interesting because that's literally been my thing this week. Like mm. I was telling these guys before that uh, I'm so excited for this, this talk and this, this episode because mm. this week has been centered around that for me. Like finding the balance between mm. like, oh, I should be into her. And like, I should, I mean, mm. I'm not, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm a, as a guy, I'm not going to date a girl I'm not attracted to. That's just my mm -hmm. kind of, but mm -hmm. I also want to like, make sure I'm attracted to it, but we have some sort of connection otherwise. And so you just mm -hmm. saying that, that like, makes me feel better, you know, it just makes me feel mm -hmm. better. About like, okay. Like the first thing for me, at least is the attraction. Like you see that because that's just, you can't know the person before, but you can see that you're like, oh, I'm attracted to this person. And so like the fact that that is not just okay, but like super, super necessary. And like you're saying now, even after you've been married, it's still a really important thing. That's absolutely comforting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of different people. 
that, how to say, there's no one attractive person. There's lots of people that are attractive to different people and for different reasons. And so it just means that we don't devalue it, but not that there's any singular version of what attractive is. Mm -hmm. No, I like that. I had a question too. Are, are like women and men, like, are they, are we equally attracted to each other like sexually or is it, is it, Yes. Or are we not? No, I think so. <laughs> I guess like, are we I think, equal I think sexually? Are, that makes sense. Well, absolutely. And, and if there's any imbalance, it's that women are more sexual than men. <laughs> but I'll, what? I'll, I'll this explain is, this why. is good to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say what I mean by that. I think men are more visually, uh, and I think this is more hardwired, and there's some social and cultural aspects of this too. I think the research shows that men are very much attracted to physical beauty, and there's, there's reproductive reasons for that because beauty can indicate health and reproductive fitness, and so it makes sense that sort of your desire to reproduce uh, with someone who's healthy um, is going to be kind of hardwired in. For women, because there is an inherent dependency when you get pregnant and you are uh, in a reproductive phase, you want to know that the person that you're sexual with has something to offer. You don't want another child. Okay, so you want someone who is strong, able to provide some sustenance during that dependency period. You want somebody, so, you, so women are drawn, the physical attraction, attractiveness matters to women, uh, meaning health matters. But even more so is character investment in the woman, you know, that you, you know, you care about the woman as an entire person, not just her, not just the sexual pleasure you can get from her or something like that. So women are more the overall character and the experience of them being strong and adult matters to women. And some men can fake this, you know, they can, they can use arrogance to look like strength uh, and, make people think that that is strength, but true strength is what really matters in long-term attraction for women. And I can say more about what that is, what I mean by true strength, but uh, strength of character, strength of self. Um, so yeah, so women, and, and women like sex more than women are allowed to sometimes acknowledge right? <laughs> uh, just like I think men are sort of sometimes slower to, to acknowledge within themselves their own desire for emotional connection and emotional vulnerability. So we have some scripts around what we're allowed to acknowledge about ourselves or kind of express or show about ourselves. But women's, women are pickier than men because it's more vulnerable to be sexual for reproductive reasons and disease reasons. And so women are as capable of sexuality as men are. They can orgasm more and longer um, than men. Men can get aroused more quickly than women, but once women are aroused, they can stay aroused for a much longer period of time and have more orgasms and things like that. So there's strong sexual capacity within women, but they're slower to um, allow it to be evidenced within a relationship because of this issue of investment and character. And I think that is the real reason why I want to bring this up and I want to have it discussed more and more and more mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. particularly within the LDS culture, I think that script of women, you know, not acknowledging their sexuality is so mm -hmm. strong. 
and yes, it's yes. important for like I need all of these guys who are out there dating girls to like like acknowledge that the girl's sexuality and you know address it but respect it at, as well right mm -hmm. and be aware of it because I think it so often women try to cater to a man's sexual impulses mm -hmm. that we disregard our own sexual needs and boundaries that's right, that's right. and it's a real set up for misery and marriage so if i were to say the archetypal couple that i work with is a woman and man who have set up their intimate relationship to be managing a man's sexual needs and men and women are kind of fed that script so it's no shocker that they play it out and you know the problem is is that it falls apart very quickly because nobody wants to service somebody for life and even if a man is having a wife who has sex with him twice a week to make sure he doesn't look at porn or doesn't, isn't unhappy with her, isn't feeling that I'm desired, that there's any passion there. She's just accommodating me. And that feels bad. And so when you set it up that men have needs that women have to accommodate, you, you how to say it, the meaning frame precludes passion because it's not an act of intimacy, it's an act of need fulfillment. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. interesting. Definitely. So, so kind of along that then, for us who are dating, obviously it's not appropriate for us to have sexual relations and whatnot, but how can we explore that or understand that, figure that out while the with the people we're dating so that mm -hmm. when it comes to the marriage, we're kind of have a, you know, a leg up, you know, we're not going in blind. Well, what I would say is the sexuality is a part of any dating relationship in which there's attraction. So I think it's better to think about it in terms of a continuum of how intimate the relationship is sexually than whether or not it's sexual. Right. Does that make sense? So there's sexual energy in any viable dating relationship, whether or not you're expressing the fullest version of that sexuality. And so there's a lot to be kind of felt and understood at a lower level of sexual expression, how much attraction there is, how receptive the woman is to you and your touch and vice versa, right? There's a lot that's being communicated even at very low levels of sort of explicit sexual engagement. And so tracking those as meaningful and important, you know, for example, the very first time I ever hugged my husband when we were dating, you know, he said to me months later, I don't even, he, he, I didn't even know that it had made an impression on him, but he said, I'd never been hugged like that before. There was just like this way in which you seem fully open to me. And I, and it was, it was striking. And I remember hugging the first time, like I felt like I could be fully open with him. Like I could just really, and, and I hadn't even kissed him yet at this point. Okay. So it was, we had just been hanging out over a couple of months and that was sort of the first entree into some physicality. And it was, I trusted him. I liked him. I felt like I could really be myself with him. And that was evidenced through the way I hugged him. Well, that would pretty well characterize the more fullest form of sexuality. It's like an openness, a freedom, a sense you can really be yourself. 
those are important things because a lot of times people think, oh, well, you have to have sex to really know something about your compatibility. I think there's a lot of indicators of how much freedom and openness there is at lower levels of physical expression. I like that. It's like, you don't have to be like, you don't have to have sex in order to be sexual, which makes That's right. perfect sense. I love that. Because right. I think a, a lot of times, you know, we think, or just people think like we have to have sex to actually be that intimate with our spouse, but really it could just be a hug. It could just be a kiss. It could just be a holding hands. It could just be a, a yes. kiss or some sort. I, I really like that. Yes, exactly. One, one thing I kind of want to, you know, shift gears just a tiny bit. Um, I want to discuss, you know, the, the law of chastity um, and kind of the shame that is associated with the following mm -hmm. that law. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think there's some misunderstandings as to, you know, we have these rules, we have these boundaries, we have these guidelines of, mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, this is, this is fine, but this is too far, you know, and it, those mm -hmm. are very nebulous. They're not very clear. And I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of shame that comes from that, but I would love to, to kind of know your thoughts on mm -hmm. how we can navigate those rules a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, so first of all, I think that it's really tempting for teachers and parents to use shame as a way to get kids, young people to not have sex. It's a tempting tool. And especially for adults who have anxiety about sexuality themselves, it's a very, very instinctive way to approach it, which is you know, to scare tactics, um, scared straight in a sense, you know, like don't even go near this thing. It's a very ineffectual way to do it because even if you succeed in your kids not having sex, you have set them up for a very ambivalent relationship to sexuality because it's not something that they've been allowed or able to really integrate as fundamental to being human. Th then you've really created um a a conundrum around intimacy because is it okay for me to share something about myself that is inherently problematic or dangerous why would i want to share that with the person that i love if there's a, if i don't trust it as something that's basically capable of being good a good thing in my life mm -hmm. so it's a very easy way to relate to sexuality is to shame people about the existence of it in the in the fact of being human um but but it's not our best understanding and i think it's a better understanding of sexuality is to say that it's a powerful form of engagement and communication it is a very mm -hmm. intimate form because it's sort of at the core of your selfhood that's why you want to be, you know, law of chastity is more like a minimal standard of, of how to say it, like the, not doing harm by having some limits on the fullest expression of, expression of sexuality. But the fact is that we are sexual from birth. Like we are sexual beings. Babies in utero will touch themselves. Now that's just the evil babies, but they still do touch themselves. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sure Hitler touched himself all the time. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so we're inherently sexual. The question is kind of how we relate to our sexuality and whether or not it creates strength in us and strengthen the people we're in relationship to, whether or not that expression is self-respecting and respectful of those that we're in relationship to. And the, what the relationship is about and the level of commitment and so on is going to define that expression and that openness. It's a symbolic way of sort of sharing your whole self. And so we want to teach not to trivialize it, not to be flippant about it, not to be self-serving within that realm without devaluing the inherent pleasure that's a part of sexuality. So, um, you know, the, the, because our goal is not just not having sex. First of all, I think when we shame it, you actually make people, in my research, the people who had most shame were least able to navigate dating relationships well because there was so much anxiety about this question of sexuality mm -hmm. that they were actually less able to make integrity-based choices than people that had a more peaceful relationship with the reality of their sexuality. So even if our goal is to not have sex before marriage, it's not a great tool to shame people. Uh, it drives people to porn or into sexual kind of repression, which are both bad for marriage. Um, but, uh, but, but the reality is our goal is not just sexual abstinence. Our goal is sexual integration, the ability to accept our embodiment, to accept the reality of our sexual nature and to create goodness through it, to create better, a better partnership, a better relationship to be able to love and be loved through our sexuality, which I think is one of the highest versions of love. And um, because it is so central to our core, to our sense of self. So I think that we're really afraid of sexuality, but I think our theology really lends itself to a deeper understanding of our sexual nature and how to create goodness and relational and moral strength through it, not in spite of it. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned sexual integration, mm -hmm. and you you definitely spelled out a lot of you know what that means. But can you break that down a little bit further? Mm -hmm. This is kind of my phrase or sort of an idea that I. So I think what I mean by that is that you know I think there's a kind of when I think about how parents or teachers most help young people is helping them to basically integrate the reality of their sexuality, the fact that they um, can feel pleasure and sensuality, and to be able to say, that's good. You know, it's like Adam and Eve, you know, that, that the body is good, and that this is a good part of being human. That's an important part of being able to integrate our capacity for pleasure, our sensual natures. Um, because a lot of parents are giving messages that this is something to be afraid of, and they're creating a division within the psyche and body of the child. And, and that's a division you pay a big price for, either through sort of split off sexual behaviors, through sort of pornography and, and doing things that are, you're not comfortable with about, you know, in your choices, or repressing it altogether. So there's the integration of the sexuality itself, but then, but then being in relationship to that sexuality from a place of your higher values, from your best self, from, from a place of self-respect and respect for others. So it's not just accepting sexuality as a given, but also 
relating to it in a way that creates self-respect and creates goodness in your relationships. And that's, that's our goal. That's the goal that we are, it, it puts us in a position to be in an intimate sexual partnership. It puts us in a position to make choices around sexuality that are not destructive or self-destructive. Um, and so our goal is being able to create good through our sexual nature. That's a, such a beautiful definition. Um, and, it, you know, I think there's a lot of people that feel a little, maybe they feel a little distant from that reality, you know, that from yes. that integration. So sure. what can we do as singles to, you know, get integrated with our sexuality? Well, I, I think that, first of all, there's a lot of people that need to kind of look at what their family culture taught them. What was my mom's relationship to her sexuality? What was my dad's relationship to it? Meaning people may be like, oh, I don't want to think about that. But what were the messages within the way that the family related? You know, did mom change the channel anytime there was any kind of sexuality on the television? Did, you know, was there... Um, was there aberrant sexual energy? That is to say, some people grow up in families where they feel that the sexuality feels out of control in the family somehow. Uh, and they may not even be able to fully understand why, but maybe there's a lot of sexually compulsive behavior going on with one, with a parent or that there's something that's not settled. Because a lot of times kids are picking up on these meanings, but it's all nonverbal. It's not being sort of made explicit. And, yet, and so therefore it's even more powerful because it's just kind of the water that you're swimming in. And so it really impacts, do I think of sexuality as something that's good, something to be celebrated, something that I look forward to, or is it something that's terrifying that I think is Satan's path to bringing me to hell? Is it is it something that will make me unsafe? You know, one of the think the one of the messages that I think I felt growing up was that sexuality belonged to men, and men could take advantage of you if you weren't careful. So, my or men could sort of hijack your life. I and mean, that was sort of the idea that I got, which is like if if you're supposed to just grow up and get married, um, and sexuality is about men, you sort of are there to kind of fold into their life, but you don't get to have your own life, and so. I instinctively, like I was attracted to guys and I, I liked the idea of sexuality, uh, at least in theory, but I was really avoidant about being in romantic relationships because I was afraid I would lose myself in those relationships. And that was like an unarticulated idea for me, but it was sort of being evidenced in the way I was in relationship to this issue of romantic relationships and sexuality at least for a while. So I think sort of looking at how do I think about sexuality? How do I think about what it means to have a sexual relationship? Am I thinking about sex, a sexual relationship as really being an intimate partnership? Am I thinking about marriage as an intimate partnership, like of equals? Or am I thinking of it as somebody who will, you know, he'll take care of my life while I service him sexually. I mean, that's how a lot of people implicitly think about it. And so they kind of set that up without even making it explicit in their own mind. So I think you want to think about what are some of the meanings and, you know, a lot of the courses that I do help people kind of have these self-reflection questions that allow them to kind of 
expose the operating meanings to themselves because when you can see it, then you can think through it. It's like, okay, like this is what happened for me in my sort of early 20s was I have this idea that I'm just supposed to fold into someone else's life. And of course, I don't want that. Like that isn't weird that I don't want that. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and so that's why I'm being so avoidant. And so it allowed me to be more able to kind of think through it and think, what's the kind of relationship that I want to have, that I want to create? Uh, what kind of man do I want to be with? What kind of person do I want to be with? Uh, who do I want to be in that marriage? And so that once I could sort of see it and then be in the driver's seat in a sense of my own choices, you know, then I didn't feel so vulnerable. I felt more like I was a creator in my own life path and in the relationship that I would um, be in for my life. So I have a question that's a little bit on this subject, but kind of changing it. So mm -hmm. I've seen relationships where the physicality and stuff kind of take over. And at least for mm -hmm. me, when it, whenever I've like been a part of it, it feels like you are kind of just drifting, like you're just mm -hmm. kind of coasting through it. So how are we able to find a good balance between like having the physical relationship and like emotional and everything else and mm -hmm. staying in that driver's seat then? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think one idea that we really have to challenge is, and one that's really common in our cultural discourse is this idea that sexuality runs us. I think we, I think we really teach this to men that you know if you have a sex addiction it's because the sex has taken over your brain in a sense and so you're along for the ride rather than the idea that yes yeah, sex is powerful sexual attraction is powerful but i continue to be a chooser in terms of what i participate in and what i'm creating and what i'm a part of it's easy to like the, the sexual validation of being attracted to someone knowing that they're attracted to you, it feels great. I mean, it feels phenomenal, okay? But I think the thing you need to, you have to think about is, am I participating in something that I think is indulgent and doesn't ultimately make me feel more whole or make me feel that I'm really creating the kind of relationship and reality that I feel is good and good for me and good for the other person? So am I just kind of, you know, because a lot of people can use things that feel good, like sexuality or food or anything, to kind of paper over other anxieties, other realities, and use it to hide from something else they need to deal with. So that's not a devaluation of sex and pleasure, but to say don't use it to uh, mask other realities that you know you need to deal with. Kind of along with that too. Um, we had an episode where we talked about 500 Days of Summer. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Um, I haven't. It's interesting. It talks about dating. It's, yeah, I maybe go watch it. But we talk mm -hmm. about it and there's a scene in which the couple have had a disagreement and they're kind of like talking for like a day or two and then eventually she comes over and they have sex and make up or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember this was an argument that we had because in my mind, mm -hmm. I was like, no, you shouldn't be solving this with physical stuff, you should mm -hmm. be talking about it, talking it through. Otherwise mm -hmm. it just gets papered over, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. But then they were saying, no, like sex and the intimacy is an important part of the relationship. So mm -hmm. I don't know, what's your stance on that? Yes, to both of your positions. <laughs> Meaning I agree with both sides of that. Uh, I do think we often have this idea that 
emotional intimacy is superior to physical intimacy. And I think they are both important and that you can, I mean, I think the reason why we sometimes pit these again is emotional intimacy is love and the other is lust. I think that's kind of what we're doing right. as opposed to, no, sex is a language. It's an intimate language. It is a way of loving and it's a way of being in relationship to another. And it can be about self-service and use, or it can be about love and caring and self-expression, right, to another person. So it isn't one thing, sexuality. There's a lot of people who are very self-serving with their sexuality, even in marriage, whether that's through, I'm not going to have it with you, okay, I'm not going to be sexual, that's a selfish version, or you need to do what I want because, you know, I have needs. And so you can be very self-serving around sexuality in or outside of marriage. You can also really love and care for and open your heart up and care for another person through your sexuality. So it can be a beautiful thing. So um, it depends on what you're doing with it. Now, if you are relating to um, the conflict in the marriage by using sex to just, you know, uh, make it go away, make it harder to deal with, well, clearly that's a problem if that's the goal. If it's like, look, I, I feel angry at you, but I also care about you and I love you and you matter to me and we have sex and now we seem more able to kind of, kind of move towards this issue, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> You're an intimate partnership who's dealing with the issues you need to deal with and um, that the sexuality is just a part of that union that maybe that the more you use it as a source of strength, you know, the better off you'll be as a couple. I like the idea of leveraging your intimate relationship as a source of strength and as a mm -hmm. source of communication. Mm -hmm. um, I think to Dustin's point, that is kind of missed when we are being self-serving with our sexuality or we feel like we're being used by that mm -hmm. intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I, I fear that a lot of women fall into that second category of feeling, feeling used, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. how can us as women kind of interpret, you know, that, that intimate connection as, mm -hmm. you know, are we being, are we actually being used? Is he really being self-serving or is he mm -hmm. really being sincere, um, you know, mm -hmm. how do we navigate that, that whole yep. dynamic? Good. So first I would say maybe three, three things, maybe one is that we set it up in the meaning frame, the sort of archetypal sexual relationship that we kind of culturally offer to men and women is one of men using women. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that men have needs women have less desire, but if they're good, they'll accommodate those needs. That is a using paradigm. Right. It's maybe noble because uh, men have the gift and burden of sexuality in that paradigm. And the women are the ones who legitimize that burden and privilege. Um, so that's a crappy meaning frame, even though it's a common one. And when women feel used in that, there's one of three possibilities to think about. One is, am I just kind of in a meaning frame that I've sort of inherited that is not really the best understanding of what's going on? Like, is my spouse, because, because I think you have to look at, like, is my spouse thinking about this from an entitled position? He might be. I mean, 
you might even not blame him because he might think that's how I've always thought about it. Be righteous till marriage. And then the reward is a woman who wants to have sex with me for eternity. So I'm just doing what I've been told it's supposed to be. But is he, is he relating to me from an entitled position or am I just in a kind of default understanding? So that's important thing. And then another important question to ask is, um, even if he is in some version of entitlement, have I been complicit in it myself through that paradigm by acting weaker than I am, kind of hiding behind his sexuality rather than dealing more forthrightly with creating a sexual partnership? So one of the things I resist in the way we think is that sort of that men are the strong ones and women are inherently need men's protection. And the problem I have with that is that it can make it so that women can blame men for the issues of their own unhappiness without women kind of stepping up and taking deeper responsibility for what the marriage is creating and their part in that. So if they're feeling used, I think, okay, you want to see, I think my spouse is doing that. What role, if any, do I have in this? Have I been also relating to sex like it's something that I'm supposed to do for him? And then using my resentment about that to basically not have to deal with my sexuality, not grow myself up sexually, um, basically act like a martyr in the relationship because then I can extract other things. Okay, so I'm making women sound really bad. Men and women have, we're very good often at kind of finding ways to not develop ourselves through our resentments about who the other person is or isn't. And so, yes, we may be right in what we're tracking about our spouse, but a really important question is to deal with the beam in our own eye and how we are complicit in it or participating in that limited meaning because that's the part you have control over. And when you deal with your own role, it makes you much more able to deal with, um, you know, because then it could sound like, hey, I think we're in this frame where uh, I'm managing your sexuality and sex is mostly about you. And I think it sucks for both of us. There's a good chance that your spouse would agree with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, I think you're right. I feel like you accommodate me, but you're not into me. And, you know, because then you can start working together to shift that meaning and how you're relating to the issue of your sexuality as a couple. I think when I want to reiterate what you're saying and kind of say what I've been hearing. And what I've been mm -hmm. hearing is that by not acknowledging our own sexuality, we almost mm -hmm. sabotage our ability to have a healthy sexual relationship. Absolutely. And I kind of wanted to just reiterate that a little bit and let that sink in for everybody, because that's something that I you know, I don't want for anyone. I don't want anyone to kind of sabotage their ability to have a meaningful sexual relationship, have a meaningful marital relationship. And I really think it requires us to take a look at the mirror a little bit, acknowledge our responsibility in some of these, you know, dialogues and some of these paradigms that you mentioned, and then flip the script a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, I, and I guess that could lead to another question Dr. Finlayson Five, how would you flip the script? How 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 do we need to? Well, one it? of the ways. I mean, so my the, uh, one of the online courses I do is called the Art of Desire, and it's uh, a a course for LDS women around their relationship to themselves and their sexuality. And it's not for married women; it's for women. 
And the reason why I say it that way is because our sexuality is a gift from God to us. And when we treat it like it's something that belongs to a future spouse or something to be terrified of, that it's like this inbuilt mechanism for Satan to get us or something like that, we, we divide ourselves from our strength. We, dis- we divide ourselves from our own embodiment and it interferes with our strength of self. It interferes with our sense of ability to claim our own lives, our desires, our wisdom. It's all very, very related. And so while it can seem like, oh, it's just an accessory or it's this sort of thing you do when you're married and you kind of tolerate, put up with your husband's, you know, hedonistic, uh, natural man nature. <laughs> I mean, a lot of us are tempted by that because then we don't have to grow up as much. But the, re- the real struggle is that when you divide yourself from your embodiment, which is our parents in heaven's gift to us, we really divide ourselves from our strength and from our wisdom mm-hmm. and from our comfort within our own bodies. And that is a huge loss for women and it's a huge loss in your ability to be a force a, for a source of strength in your marriage and in your parenting. So it's really important for women to not be divided from their own sexuality. I love, love that. that. Okay. And I, I, I do want to kind of add to, and maybe just kind of go back to kind of like when it comes to boundaries. Um, I've heard a lot of people like just, you know, young single adults in, in this generation having a hard time finding a boundary. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and with that boundary, they, they tend to, I guess, say this, the standards of, you know, the church, they go across that boundary. And since they've crossed the boundary, um, they tend to break up with, you know, whoever they're with um, mm-hmm. intimately or, or something like mm-hmm. that. So I kind of want to, can I ask, um, is it necessary to break up with your girlfriend or with, um, let's say for example, are you, you, you are with a girlfriend or or a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Is it, Mm -hmm. is it necessary to, to break up with said person or is it more of the fact of like, do we want to work this out and actually come to a conclusion of like finding our own sexuality and finding those boundaries again and recommitting Mm -hmm. to not do that. Um, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, one thing is I would really want to know if I were the therapist or the coach to somebody who was in that question is why, what was the boundary and, and why did it get trespassed? Was it about a basic disrespect of one person for the other's boundary? And is that a kind of emblematic of the relationship that what you say matters to you, the other person disrespects? Because if that's a chronic part of a relationship, probably a signifier that this may not, that there may be something self-disrespecting about continuing to be with this person who doesn't respect a meaningful boundary. Is it that you both care about each other so much and you genuinely are so attracted that you are kind of uh, having a harder time kind of holding on to a boundary that matters to you, but that you want to reassert that boundary and that you really do care about the other person, then I would say absolutely that is 
it's an act of self-correction that's really essential to any good marriage. If it's about, look, I think that this works against us to cross that boundary. I think we want, you know, if we agree that we want to kind of maintain this boundary, then we owe it to ourselves to do, to, to respect our own integrity, to respect our position as a couple, that we would undermine ourselves as a couple to betray something that matters to us. So it's a good litmus test of your couplehood is if you can really kind of honor something that matters to you both as a couple and to respect it. Not because the church tells you to do it. I mean, you can do it that way, but I don't think that's, that's like a disowning of what your values are. I would be thinking about what matters to me, what matters to us, and can we respect ourselves enough and each other to really honor that boundary. And if we need to course correct, that we can course correct. That's an important thing to be able to do as a couple. I like that. And I I would say that even, you know, navigating boundaries is something that doesn't go away after you get married. That's right. Right. Absolutely. Including including with your intimate relationship. Yes, 100%. A lot of people just shut down any physicality in their marriage except for when they're when it's Wednesday night which is sex night or something like that because they don't trust the ability to navigate boundaries mm-hmm. like well if I let him touch me then it means we have to have sex I'm like wait what you know like why don't you feel able at any point to stand up for or navigate what you want it's like well he starts to get aroused and then if he's aroused and it would be cruel and I just think that's not actually taking responsibility for oneself in a marriage and instead the idea that, at least in that example, that the woman has to manage my sexuality. Well, that's a boundary problem. And you pay dearly for boundary issues like that because it shuts down any openness in the marriage if you feel like you're constantly having to manage somebody else. So taking deep responsibility for yourself and being self-respecting and respectful of the other is a a very important capacity in any viable marriage and in any marriage that stays passionate throughout the, you know, 50 plus years that you're together. And that's very much what I'm teaching all the time in my, in my, uh, you know, uh, marriage courses is around the, the essential reality of character development and self-respect and respect for other that's foundational to any open-hearted sexual and emotional relationship. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Um, Okay, so I want to ask this last question. Um, I'm not sure if we've already covered it, but maybe it'd be good to reiterate. And it's kind of a joint question. So let me just quickly, quick. Mm -hmm. So we had on there, on our list of questions to ask you, uh, what do you wish, um, what do you wish single people would know about sex before they got married or married people or married couples and whatnot? And I was kind of thinking along the lines too, like, what is it you tell your children or those you Mm -hmm. work with um, in order for them to go into that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, okay. It's sort of a big question. I'm just trying to think about where to start. I mean, I think what I, what I, I think both what I have sort of offered to my children and what I think people should know is that sexuality is a foundational part of life and a foundational part of selfhood and not just something you add on in marriage. And the other thing I would say is it's as important for women as it is for men, and that it's really important to claim your sexuality as a part of being a woman 
or a man, and that some piece with that sexual nature must come from you, not from your partner. Mm -hmm. So one of the traps that people get into is that they need their spouse's desire to validate their sexuality. So there's a lot of men that are maybe the higher desire partners in the marriage, but that the fact of their higher desire masks the fact that they are also really ambivalent about their sexuality. And so they want their wife's desire for them to legitimize this thing that they've been given mixed messages on. And when she has her own anxieties about sex and or doesn't want to have to manage his sexual anxieties or you know feelings about himself through his sexuality, then they can't get that validation. And so then they're angry at the wife as opposed to seeing that they're giving away a responsibility that belongs to themselves. So that's kind of my long way of saying, you know, coming to peace with the gift that God gave you and being able to, to see it as something that's valuable and important and how you relate to this gift is something for you to feel good about it is really something for you to work out with yourself. And that's critical to being able to create something open-hearted and shared. Um, and again, just that I wouldn't, I would not want people to devalue it as something that Satan uses to get you. There's a lot of cheap versions of sex out there, that's for sure. A lot of hedonistic and immature versions. But that this is something that's about being divine beings and embodied beings and something that if you neglect, it will cost you dearly. Beautifully said. Yes, thank you. So I think it goes without saying, but stay sexy, everyone. <laughs> I think it's. I agree. I, I think yeah. it's. I think it's real, and we should embrace our sexuality. And and um, just as you said, Doctor Finlayson Fife, you know, get integrated with it. Um, yes. Really, really appreciate you providing that insight. It's been so wonderful, so helpful. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here. <laughs>